Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Lori Sweetman. They are a non-binary polyamorous lesbian who came out later in life. And Lori strives to create affirming and positive environments for LGBTQ plus populations. So I'm very grateful for Lori to being here today, and I'm happy to have them share their story. So Lori, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thanks for having me, Sarah. I am, as you put it, the non-binary, lesbian, polyamorous, and I am a life coach. I'll add that in, life coach. I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. Um, I like sunset walks on the beach. What else can I say about myself? Let's see. <laughs> I I love being out in the woods. <laughs> now, on all seriousness, um, there is so many facets to somebody and who they are and their identity. And uh, we try to share as much as we can about ourselves so people can connect. So I'll start off with the lesser known, lesser talked about identities, um, being that I came out later on in life. I came out, I think I was 36 or 37, somewhere in that range. And I was in a relationship, uh, married to a man for a very long time. That was my high school sweetheart. And when I came out, we went through a messy divorce, but we're, we're friendly now. And I had two kids with them. They're 10 and nine. And I feel weird saying that because it makes me feel very old. <laughs> how did they, how did they reach the elementary grade level age? I don't know. Um, but they are the sweetest, most wonderful children in the whole wide world. And they are neurodiverse. So I, I also come from neurodiverse family. That's another identity to bring out there. We are agnostic, atheist. There's another identity. I have Italian heritage is another one. I am of the see-through skin identity. <laughs> so as far as like race goes, I, that's part of the majority. So you don't really hear me talking about that too much as that's well known and well understood. We talk more about our lesser known assets of ourselves. And being that that's the the avenue that I've taken with life coaching, helping those who are trying to understand themselves, who are trying to find empowerment, and they are um, underrepresented, also known as minority gender and sexuality identities. I try to advocate for and talk about those facets of myself more when I go to public speaking, when I do training, when I do um, advocacy work. When I go to host um, group coaching or support groups, or when I'm helping parents advocate for their children in the schools, I try to bring awareness to those facets of ourselves that are underrepresented, not seen in the great majority. And I really don't know what else to say about myself except that I love my doggies and my wife and my guinea pigs and my children. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for the the great deep dive into all of your identities. Do you want to start with kind of what it was like coming out later in life and then, you know, going through a divorce and being able to identify as you do now? 
Oh, it was, uh, it would make a great epic novel, you know, start off with the rough patch. Then we're in the whirly twirly tornado of chaos. And then we come out with the big old rainbow, you know, it's, it's for everybody who goes through a change in their life where they've come to this realization about themselves and it shakes you to your core and it's a huge, uh, a huge difference than what anyone has ever seen or known about you and you don't have others to look to in your life or in your, from when you were growing up or in the representation around you, it rocks you to your core and it rocks the people around you to their core. So how I came to that realization, well, that's a very long story that I'm sure many people uh, can relate to where you thought you knew yourself, but you didn't. And then all of a sudden you're like looking back on hindsight is 2020. Like, how did I not know that about myself? And every, there's all those clues along the way. You're just not realizing you're not picking up on those clues because, you know, you're trying to fit in and, and you're being, uh, following in family footsteps or you're, you're noticing around you what others are doing and you're growing and learning from them. So to grow up in a heterosexual, heteronormative environment, you're going to wind up being (laughs) a lot like the environment you grow up in, but not really quite fitting in well. So I didn't really quite fit in well into that environment. It just wasn't actually me. And when you start to pay more attention to yourself and start questioning and things about yourself and start going on that, that journey of who am I? What is it that I truly like outside of what others tell me or show me or modeled for me? You start to pick up on things. And I picked up on the fact that I would be a lot happier in a relationship with a woman. I would be a lot happier and more fulfilled in that sort of a relationship. And as far as the gender identity goes, it was the same kind of concept. I didn't feel like I fit in well with those social norms around me that were being bestowed upon me because I was born, um, I was born assigned female at birth. And you being on the podcast that talks a lot about identities, I I think your audience probably has heard that before. But just in case, when you're talking about gender versus sex versus sexuality, there's all different things. Sexuality and relationships. It's who you love and who you're attracted to and your eroticism aspects, but also the intimacy aspects and that sexuality. So for me, I identify as a lesbian and I know about myself that I can love more than one person. Right now I'm living and married to Uh, living with and married to a woman. She's a cis woman. She identifies as a woman as well. And that's what she was assigned with as birth. Um, I know that I'm capable of having romantic relationships with more than one person, but I am fulfilled right now with my one person. But that doesn't mean to me that I won't, that I might not explore or want more in the future. Just right now, I'm happy where I'm at. I have in the past had multiple relationships for long periods of time and most very fulfilled. So I know that about myself, just like someone who's bisexual or polysexual or all of the various ends of the, the spectrum of fluidity that you can have, you can 
love multiple uh, genders or multiple intimacy styles. Um, but you might pick one person that you really connect with and that makes you monogamous. It doesn't mean that you no longer find attracted to or be interested in having romantic relationships with other genders. For me, it's that with relationships. I know I can right now I'm with one doesn't mean I can't in the future. So I still identify as polyamorous, still identify as lesbian. For, for my gender, when I say I was assigned female at birth, they were looking at your sex organs when you were born. I was born with the female genetics, right? And so I was raised as a girl, as a, and the role of a female that the majority would see as that. And when I started to go on my identity exploration, I realized that I wasn't really happy in a lot of those roles that people see assigned with girl or woman or female or uh, feminine, right? But I'm also not on the other end of that spectrum either in the masculine aspects either or what the majority of society would note for that. I am fluid. I'm in between. I'm in the in-betweeny assignments, right? Uh, you, you joke about it because it's easier to hear about and talk about, you know? Um, life doesn't have to be super serious. You can make it a lot more fun. And I find gender really a lot of fun. I like to explore my roles and I like to explore the way I dress and explore the way I behave and I act and I experiment with gender. And that's why I consider myself gender fluid or non-binary. Non-binary is that umbrella term. And you got all the little ones underneath it that are in that fluid spectrum from trans mask to trans femme to, to not, uh, other non-binary aspects would be gender fluid, non-conforming, um, a, asexual. You have a lot of different demi, there's demi fluid. There's all kinds of ways you can describe yourself. So I just stick with non-binary because the big old umbrella covers a lot of different things. And I don't like to be labeled in a fit in a tiny little box. So as all of this kind of self realization, like having, you know, words for your identity and going through the divorce, do your children understand mm. like what happened and do they understand, you know, what it means to be non-binary because they are, you know, at that grade school age? Oh yeah. Um, my children were preschool, kindergarten-ish, and I think it was like second grade or first grade-ish when I divorced their father and we moved into a little apartment and there was a lot of chaos with, uh, with that move and with figuring out the parenting, uh, co-parenting co styles that we were going to have. And, um, and all that relates to that. There was a lot of change at that time and they were aware of the change. They, they knew what was going on. So what I did to help with that was, uh, make sure that I didn't bring up any negativity around our relationship. Mommy still loves you. Daddy still loves you. We just can't live together right now. We don't, we, we don't fit well as, as husband and wife, but we fit well as your parents. And so we discussed that them as our children would still be loved and cared for in the way they knew it was just in different households. 
And that was the cap of what they could understand and wrap their mind around at that period of time. They didn't need to know the details of why we divorced, just like um, any other family could have any reason why they chose to divorce. They never loved each other. It was all about the money. So we divorced. Dad, uh, mom just didn't quite fit well with our finances. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why people might divorce. Um, And you don't bring up all those details with your children. What you do to say is we don't live together anymore. We don't work well as a couple anymore. Doesn't mean we don't care for each other anymore. Just not in the way we thought we would want to for the rest of our lives. So we are no longer together, and but we will always be your parents. We will always love you no matter what. You could be mad at you, but we'll still love you. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't go away. Um, so I made sure to let them know that I we cared about each other as as friends, we did not care about uh, to live with each other as husband and wife. And it wasn't until actually this fall when they started asking questions about the why. And now they're older. 10 and 9 is much older than preschool and kinder, right? And the chaos of that time has settled. And we are in our, our routine. We are we're seeing the, uh, the daddy figure like Sometimes two nights out of the week and every other weekend was the schedule he decided upon for himself. So that's when they see daddy. But um, they talk to him once in a while in between. He's just uh, not very good at that whole phone communication thing. (laughs) And I don't think they are the greatest either, honestly. (laughs) Um, But they've picked up on the fact that their parents are still their parents and we still communicate about them. And um, so that that's settled. Now they're like, well, what was the real reason? Like, we want to know more. And I'm like, oh, you do, huh? You think, <laughs> yeah, well, tell me all about your private details, kids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's see your diary. <laughs> no. Um, I went into uh, just the fact that <sighs> mommy and daddy discovered that we don't fit as a couple. We look for, we're looking for different traits in people that as our, as our romantic couple. So they're start, they can see in the videos and TVs and movie commercials, all that stuff. They could see what romance is all about. They can see what dating is all about. They're even starting to be at that age where they might have crushes, you know, and they can feel that difference between what a friendship is and when their heart flutters for somebody that they're attracted to. I mean, I bet you, Sarah, I could think back to your first crush. I bet you anything it was like kindergarten or first grade, possibly second grade. And we were like, ooh, I can't keep my eyes off that person in the aisle next to me in the school, right? Pass the notes like, ooh, that's a cute person, right? As kids, we do feel attraction. We don't know what to do about it, but we do feel attractions to uh, people around us. And we start to notice that our attractions might be more of a, I'm interested in brown haired people. I'm interested in the kid that does soccer. I'm interested in the kid that sings all the time, but we don't really realize that there's gender involved in that too. So I tried to relate it a bit to like what they see in their books or what they see, feel for themselves. Like you can feel the difference between the kids that you're really good friends with and the kids that you're interested in holding hands with, right? Or they, or when your storybooks that you're reading, you can notice when there's couples and when there's friends. Well, I didn't, daddy and I didn't realize that what we were having was a strong friendship and not really a romantic connection until later. 
but we were really happy that we wound up having you guys because there's nothing I would change about that. You two are perfect. And I'm so glad we went through that and we came to this realization after we had you because you're wonderful. And that's as much as I was willing to give them <laughs> about anything that happened. They didn't need the gory details of like the year or two where it was chaos trying to figure out what was off with us, <laughs> you know, like where it got really bad. They didn't need to all know all that. Right. Now, you mentioned that they are neurodiverse. So can yeah. you talk about what it's like being a parent with neurodiverse kids? Oh, yeah. There's a lot more learning involved. And there's a lot more of a team of people involved. I mean, for non-neurodiverse families, you'll still have a lot of the same problems that neurodiverse families have. It's just that your kids now have to learn a little differently to pick up on the right behaviors, the right social skills, the ways that they can learn in school. So there winds up being doctors or professionals involved as part of your team versus your family members and your friends only, or the school teachers only. You wind up having a handful of other people that you're going to for support and a whole stack of books and a whole lot of tissues. <laughs> No, I'm sure I'm sure all families deal with the stack of tissues. <laughs> um, my kids are on the autism spectrum, but they are level one on autism spectrum. There's three levels for those families out there that are listening and don't know. And the levels are literally a spectrum. It's and it defines how much support is needed for various facets of autism. Since I have a background in psychology, I went, I went to school and got my master's in psychology, I have a good concept of what this means for how their brain works, how the biopsychosocial aspects of their development is going to look for me. And I feel very privileged to be in that position with having neurodiverse children to have gone to school and be able to use those that skill base and that core but I still reach out to a lot of people for support, right? And I picked up on their differences when they were very young. So I was very lucky in that aspect where I was able to advocate and start young with their different therapies that they need to help learn. They're very smart. And with their level one, they have a big... Um, a big wide range in in different sensory needs between each other, but they both have high IQ ability where they're picking up on learning very well, but the application of it and communicating about it is very low so socially and emotionally. So they are taking in tons of information, like a sponge, soaking it up, super duper smart in that aspect that they that they're learning quickly, but their use of it and the common social skill stuff, the everyday stuff, all that is a deep dive into learning with different therapies, uh, different ways than just um, demonstrating it to them or modeling it to them. They're not picking that up from their environment quickly. So you would wind up with tantrums when they were little. You'd wind up with um, not understanding why they were having these meltdowns, lack of friendships. Now uh, they're kids picking on them. But since we got them into therapies young and we advocated for them as they were growing, 
they're doing really well right now. Not saying that they don't need help still with lots of things all the time, but they are they are doing really well for where they could have been if we didn't. So that process getting there was also chaos. <laughs> Just like the change process was for my identity, um, the parenting process was chaos in the beginning. What's going on here? Uh, I'm focusing solely on my children, not on who I am. So that delayed my identity process for myself and my relationship with my ex-husband. We were, I was solely focused on them and what their needs were and why are they having these struggles? Why is my kid two and a half years old only saying mom once in a while? Oh, shoe was her first word, not mom. Excuse me. Shoe. Yes. My daughter's first word was shoe. Imagine how I felt in that moment when she said shoe. <laughs> like, where's the mom? <laughs> and on the other hand, my son was just speaking in full sentences when he was barely a year old. So you have like these big, huge leaps and bounds, but at contrast to these huge leaps and bounds of needs that weren't quite fitting there and figuring that out and having people listen to me that I, I saw this and what was going on, them wanting to wait and see, just wait and see. And that was, that was hard. That was a struggle. That was a struggle getting to where I am now with them. Definitely. And you were very fortunate that you had like the background in psychology that you did. So can you take us a little bit through kind of your education structure and, you know, how you got to be a coach as you are today? Well, I had preschool when I was three years old. <laughs> no, I actually never had preschool. <laughs> uh, graduated high school, went straight into college. Um, and when I went to college, I uh, did not really know for sure what it was that I wanted to do. Um, I noticed that is pretty common with a lot of people who have not quite settled on their gender and sexuality identity or people who are from an underrepresented group. They're missing the, that middle high school level of identity development that's slowed down because they're matching what others are doing instead of exploring themselves. So I fell into that rut too. I wound up going for my bachelor's in fine arts, getting a certification to teach. So I actually had a dual bachelor's. I had um, come out with my education um what was it? A K to 12 certification for fine art teaching, but also uh, elementary education uh, certification. So that was my one degree. And the other degree was solely visual arts, fine arts, painting and drawing. And I do love art. So that wasn't so off. I do enjoy teaching. That wasn't too far off, but I don't enjoy um, solely teaching kids art right? That was the, the mismatch there. So I wasn't too far off. Um, I dove into teaching at the uh, grades three to five level, teaching fine art for 18, uh, yeah, 18 years. <laughs> Very long time. I stu I stuck there. But throughout that time, I kept on educating myself and exploring different things that I could do. So while I was teaching kids um, visual arts and there, I really did enjoy teaching them the art history aspect, exploring, um, gender and sexuality and, and different time periods, different 
cultural, social justice aspects of art history while we were doing our projects um, and giving them the chance to freely explore themselves in their projects. That aspect was was kind of in the direction that I was going in for coaching. And I noticed that. I noticed that what I enjoyed doing in the job that I had was very similar to supporting people in understanding themselves, in um, in advocating for people of underrepresented identities, in teaching still, but just a different way of teaching. And so I tried out going for my master's in art education when I lost my first child. So I stopped my master's for many years after that. And then I went ahead and tried uh, my fine art degree in my own side business. And I did that for a few years, which was fun, but not fulfilling. I enjoyed creating art, but I didn't enjoy selling art. And I did well at it. I just didn't enjoy doing it. (laughs) I wound up doing like wedding painting. I wound up doing um, some shows, organized some live painting events. It It was interesting. It was fun socializing with people, but I didn't enjoy the having to constantly create art for others. I really rather enjoyed making it for myself. And I noticed that because of constantly spending time on releasing my emotional pain and my needs um, into my artwork as a way of expressing my feelings. But when I picked up on the fact that I was spending more time supporting parents during the pandemic, with their neurodiverse children and spending a lot of time um, supporting people that were coming out or struggling with coming out. That's when I was like, huh, this is interesting. I'm noticing more about myself again. What, when we see what's going on here. And I went and went back for my master's in psychology, but I didn't stop there. This is, this is my, my issue with the always exploring myself thing. I got like 30 credits towards social psychology. I got uh, my master's in social psychology. I got another 15 credits towards um, neurodiverse special needs kids uh, to get my VCBA um, degree. And then, uh, then when I noticed here I am again trying to figure myself out, that I was spending too much time researching gender and sexuality for all these other majors. (laughs) I switched my master's specialty again to gender and sexual fluidity. And that's when I finally graduated with my master's with, should be two masters with how many credits I took. But (laughs) I got my 4.0 in my master's in psychology for gender and sexual fluidity and wound up uh, using that in starting up the first um, the first group of resources for the county that I live in. So I have support groups. I made connections with uh, mental health professionals and county agents to similar to social work where you're able to like um, support people with their community needs uh, and counseling, but I'm not counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm not healing. I am guiding. I am helping people see within themselves what it is that they're curious about and helping them guide them and exploring themselves and making those tough decisions um, and moving in the direction of empowering them to 
get what they need, do what it is that they want, understand what that is, and move forward. So I reach out to schools in the area. I reached out to the, the health agencies in the area, and I am a resource for the area. And so are you still creating art? Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. But not as often because of um, the timeliness of my master's and working on this other venture of mine. But I did create a studio in my basement since we just bought a house. And I'm being more intentional with that time. My daughter is very artistic too. Um, My son is super creative in a unique way. My daughter enjoys drawing and painting and crafting and she hoards recyclables. I have to get her to stop doing that. (laughs) But we sit together and we paint together and I enjoy that so much. I, I have some things in my room that I've created that I hang up. I still have up the very first painting that sent me in that adventure, which was what I, what I created when I lost my child. Um, and I have a sketchbook that's out my end table on my, by my couch. So when I'm watching TV, I'm doodling, you know, and I pour a lot of my creative energy into the support group stuff and, um, the web design for my website and the advertisements. There's a lot of ways that you can use art. And so I'm still using it just, uh, not in the way that I originally intended or thought when I got my bachelor's degree. And so you talked a little bit about coaching and helping others. So what was it like kind of setting up this business and, you know, kind of putting out into the world what you want to help others with? It was scary at first, you know, like the, the words that I heard you say was um, putting it out into the world. You're, you're coming out to everybody when you're coming out as a gender and sexuality coach. And the identity that I have figured out for myself is still fairly fresh. So I think I'm at like six years out now. It's so weird when I say that, but yeah, it's not very, it's not very long since I've been out. Um, <laughs> and when I got my degree and I started deciding I wanted to do life coaching, I had some background in starting a business already because I did that with my wedding painting venture. Um, but I took more classes at the SBA and the Women's Business Center had some free things going on because of the pandemic. Um, so I took a lot of time on getting mentors, getting uh, some other people who are life coaches to talk to and just collaborate with. But when I went to go make my website and went to go put out my first post or went to go make my first podcast or went to um, into like creating the support group, that's when I had to be like, I'm a life coach for, I am a, my name is an I am. And when I have to fill in those blanks, it's like, I'm coming out again. I'm coming out again. People are hearing that I am not of the majority. I don't have uh, a heteronormative lifeline here of like my my life looks like and (laughs) who I am. I'm not uh, of that big herd that sticks together and doesn't have any problems with resources or 
with bigotry or with um, discrimination or with prejudice or unconscious bias. And I was also dealing with internalized homophobia that I was still managing when I first came out. So uh, becoming public with who I was was also a journey in and of itself, you know? But the actual creating of the business, that was so enjoyable. Being able to meet new people um, that were also like-minded and seeing the light bulb turn on on a parent's or a kid become proud of themselves and make new friends. Uh, a person like find the confidence to have boundaries with an unhealthy parent that once they've come out, like those kinds of things were so rewarding. They were the energy to keep me going. It just like refilled my bucket as I kept moving forward with building the business. And so it sounds like you started with kind of like this local group and like yeah. local resources. Have you been able to expand outside of that? Oh, um, I don't put as much energy into the great worldwide internet as I probably should. <laughs> um, I, I keep hearing that I really should do that. And I keep being like, well, that means I have to spend more time on the web with like advertising myself. And so I don't do as much of that as I really should. Um, I, let's see, I do have a lot more clients that are local than that are not, but I have had some coaching clients that were from pretty far west. I'm in New Jersey, for those of you who are curious, uh, northwest New Jersey. So Warren County, Hunterdon County, Sussex County, and the Delaware Water Gap area. That's kind of like the region that really hears a lot from me and comes out for things. But um, I have gotten some people. There's one from that was from Washington State. There was one that was Canadian there was somebody that was like Midwest area that have like worked with me for a little bit of time. Um, but a lot of the the stuff that I do does happen to be in person. I do have an office. That was a new expansion that just happened in December. This is January uh, now for those listening later. <laughs> so I've had it for a whole whopping month. <laughs> but I'm super proud of that office. Um, I'm only there a little bit of time, but it's a step in the direction that I'm hoping for, which is helping a lot of the community that's around me. Uh, I like being working with people in person. I do like seeing that this area that's very rural part of New Jersey. Yes, those of you who enjoy the Jersey Shore and Sopranos are going to be surprised to hear that there is woods in New Jersey and mountains too, <laughs> not just urban area. And this very rural section that I'm in um, is very, very lacking in the resources that they need for the LGBTQ community, not just with things that can help them with their mental health, but representation. Um, in the schools, you don't have uh, s proper supports for uh, for the for the children. Like there's no GSA, there there's no diversity club. There's um, problems with some of the local laws that are not 
um, being supportive of the needs of that community. So I feel my heart really pressing for this area. And do you find outside of kind of, you know, the established structures that people in your area are welcoming to the LGBTQ plus community? Well, yes and no. Um, there's pockets that are starting to bubble up since I've been helping a few, there's a few other people that are trying to push for this too. So I'm not alone in this, but, um, between me and the couple other people that were starting to build the pride events or support groups, we're starting to find these pockets of people that are allies, but the majority of people are not. It's, there's still KKK in some, in, in this area. There is um, some people that put up signs that are very homophobic on their establishments and on the corners of streets where they're busy. Um, you will find hate crimes if you Google news about the area. Um, you will find people that are being uh, shunned at their work or afraid to come out at work or have a lot of those microaggressions. And um, microaggressions are little underlying mosquito bites, I want to call them. Like they're little jabs through your day. So when you go through your day in this area, you will get little things that pick at you that you're just that you try and brush off like you're not noticing. It could be anything from a form that you fill out at the doctor's office that doesn't have a gender spot for you, or it says husband and wife when you are wife and wife or husband and husband, right? To um, someone blatantly saying something homophobic in the line next to you and laughing about it, or an advertisement for the heteronormative. So like all of these little things that happen through your day, you get at home at the end of the day and you're just like itching all over <laughs> with all those mosquito bites. You just, you're trying to unwind. You don't really know why you're so irritated and irritable and what's bothering you until you really pay attention to what's happening in your day. And that's what a lot of people in this area are dealing with. It's that unconscious bias from the great majority <clears throat> and microaggressions through the day and blatant bigotry and prejudice stuff from various locations that you drive through around this area. So yes, there's allies. That's why I was like, yes to no. Yes, there are allies. There is starting to be some positive things happening in this area that are bringing out people that are, that were hiding in the woodwork because there wasn't enough people with that positive voice speaking up. But there's also the great negative that you're still trying to push out that has been here since the farms were built <laughs> in this area, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, you mentioned earlier on that kind of at the beginning, you had some of your own internalized homophobia, yeah. but when you're in this sort of area where like, that's what's around you, you know, that can be hard to overcome, even though you're like, this is what I want. Yeah, for real. Absolutely. Um, I knew when I came out to my, to my, uh, family, but when I was going on that journey, I was like, 
I never had this blatant like dislike for the LGBTQ community, but I did have that whole like I shouldn't be this. And that's from the unconscious absorbing of negative information around me. Like when my my parents, when I was younger, would say things uh, that were very uh, negative towards the queer community. And they were just mimicking things that they heard and fitting in with the group that they were part of or that they learned when they were growing up. When I was a child, it was um, just at the tail end and during the AIDS endemic. So you had it during that period of time, a lot of negative information in the news. And there was negative things in the um, in advertisements and in the community when they were talking. And in your schools, when they started talking about what AIDS was and how to be careful with blood transfer, um, transferring blood. So when I was growing up, I had this idea that I should not walk or talk or look like anybody that is gay or um a different gender than myself, than what I was born with, right? And that it would be a very bad thing if I was, because there would be a lot of horrible things that would happen to me. And getting, working through that and changing that voice inside me uh, takes time. You know, I couldn't say lesbian when I first came out. I was like, I'm gay. (laughs) I'm like, well, what does this mean? Um, I like... I like people that look that look kind of masculine, but are also born a woman and have all the 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 cis female parts on them that I can play in touch with. But like they should kind of have like this masculine aura about them. So that makes me queer, different. Um, little, <laughs> I'm a little, <laughs> and I couldn't get the word out. I'm I'm joking about it now, but like it would I would have like this lump in my throat and this ache in my belly and I'd be embarrassed and I'd be ashamed and I would have such a hard time saying the word lesbian. My mother had such a horrible reaction to the word lesbian. Horrible. It was rather entertaining, but it was terrible, (laughs) you know, Um, and that's where I got it from. You know, that's, that's where I heard it. That was a bad word a very, very bad word. And it's not. Right. (laughs) Yes. And you can hear how, you know, when you share these stories, how much growth you have had. Um, And I think early on, you mentioned something about, you know, kind of enjoying life and, you know, kind of the happiness and um, being able to, you know, kind of like laugh back at things. Yeah. So before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? Oh, I would like to the listeners to know that if you're questioning your journey, that's normal. It's a healthy part of life to question who you are. Identity journey is part of your growth. From when you're a kid to when you're adult, you're constantly on this learning path and that's okay. It's okay. It's also okay to think that you might be one way and find out that you're another way. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of things that you can relate to, Sarah, with your journey where you're probably like, oh, I, I like these things about myself when I was young, but I feel different about them now. That's normal. That's a part of growing up. And if you're going through something that is hard to figure out and you're overwhelmed about the change, slow down. 
take your time. There's no rush. It's okay. You can um, reach me, of course, at um, on my websites that'll be attached to the description that Sarah's going to have in the podcast. Uh, include lgbtq.com is my website. And I am open to virtually coaching. If anybody does need to talk to me about something, I do the first session on the house. But for those listening to your podcast, if they mention your podcast, I'll give them a discount on a, on a few sessions. I am coming out with a podcast too, These Queer Stories. I started the first, uh, recording the first few episodes at the overwinter break. So they should be coming out sometime soon. Keep your eye out for that. But be be compassionate with yourself. Be treat it yourself the way you would be treating others. And we hear that usually in the reverse, like treat others the way you want to be treated. But when we're going through these hard things, we tend not to treat ourselves very well right away. So I'm going to reverse that for your listeners. If you're going to treat your best friend while going through a hard time kindly, treat yourself kindly going through a hard time and reach out for support with anybody if you need support. That is a great lesson to end on here. Now, at the end, I do ask my guests a random question that doesn't have anything to do with what we talk about. So my question for you today is simply, what is your favorite board game and why? Oh my gosh, maybe I pick one. <laughs> or maybe a few if you can't narrow it down. Oh my gosh. Well, um, we have a lot of board games in the house. <laughs> we do board games like very, free, actually very frequently. Um, let's see. The last couple of games I played are not board games, though. I played Mancala with my kids. That's a lot of fun. Look it up uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's an old school game. And Skippo was last night. <laughs> but I think uh, life has gotten me irritated. I changed it up a bit. Do you know why life has me irritated? If you are someone that works for the company that created the board game Life, please reach out to me about how to make a queer friendly life game. <laughs> um, so we, I let my kids pick out the different pegs so that they can have a uh, boy or girl peg. But then I was like, where's my non-binary peg? And I tried to combine the two in one spot and it didn't work out too well. <laughs> um, but life was a, as a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with the game of life even though it's not queer friendly. Shame on you, life. Make a queer friendly one. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. As Lori mentioned, I will be leaving some great links for them in the description. So their main website, along with their Facebook page, and the newly created podcast link for these queer stories that will also be there. So feel free to go check any of those links out. And of course, our podcast website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episodes, all past guest resources and social media, along with all of our social media. So Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. And if you'd like to be a guest, my email is in the description also. So feel free to reach out to me and connect with me. So thank you so much, Lori, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.